Before reading the scripture for this morning, I do want to just introduce you to Dave Saul. Uh, Dave is the founder and director of Mockingbird Ministries, uh, which is an organization that seeks and I think um, actually does uh, connect the Christian faith to the realities of everyday life. Uh, in fresh and down-to-earth ways. Uh, They do this through uh, publications. They uh, publish a a kind of quarterly journal that is beautiful, uh, full of essays and art and uh, poetry and humor. Uh, They host conferences around the country, and then they have just a a fantastic website and also an app that uh, are both worth your attention. If you are are someone who likes to listen to podcasts, uh, Dave also is the co-host of the Mockingcast podcast, You can find it wherever you uh, listen to podcasts. It's also uh, well worth uh, your attention, and I recommend uh, adding it to your lineup. Uh, And if all of that isn't uh, impressive enough, Dave also, I think, makes some of the best playlists on the internet, uh, including uh, one that he actually did put together to accompany his book, Low Anthropology. And you can find that on Spotify as well. And we'll, we'll, we'll put a link to that on our website or something like that so that you can check that out if you are someone who likes music. Uh, Dave lives with his wife and three sons in Charlottesville, Virginia, where he also uh, works on staff at Christ Episcopal Church. And we are just, we're glad. We're glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Paul's letter to the Corinthians, uh, the first uh, letter. And uh, I invite you to listen now for the word of the Lord. For the message about the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, God decided through the foolishness of our proclamation to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks desire wisdom, but we proclaim Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom, and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. This is the word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let me just... Well, thank you, John, for that uh, lovely introduction, and thank you for having me. Thank you for this invitation uh, to such a beautiful place. You know, I'm one of the many uh, people who saw ordinary people and thought that looks like kind of a a bit of heaven up there, despite quite a heavy film. And then uh, you watch John Hughes movies growing up, and you get sort of a double dose of sort of American paradise in uh, Lake Forest, Illinois. So I'm glad to be here as a movie buff as well as a church uh, uh, goer and a fan. Uh, What I didn't realize as a movie goer was that Mean Girls was set in Evanston, about 20 minutes away from here. North Shore High School refers not to the North Shore of Boston, but the North Shore here in Chicago. 
And I found this quite interesting because you see Mean Girls, for those of you who don't know, is it came out in 2003. It was very formative for my generation. It's a movie about exactly what it says. It's about the ways that girls in high school especially can be quite mean to each other. This begins in middle school, as I'm learning now that I have a middle schooler on uh, my hands. But Mean Girls, who uh, Tina Fey wrote it, because she used to work, I guess, at the YMCA in Evanston, and it was adapted into a Broadway musical, and then it was just readapted to a film this past January that maybe you saw, but you probably didn't. It didn't do very well. As sometimes it's like, how many adaptations and readaptations can we do, America? You know, it's, it's, we're, we're pushing the limit here. But there was a fascinating article that appeared in the New York Times about Mean Girls in February. And what Jessica Bennett is a woman who has been following eighth grade girls in our country for the last two years. And her review of this movie was that the girls were not mean enough. They had been softened. They, had been, they weren't using the, the language that they use. If you compare it to the earlier one, the, the treatment, the, the, the gossip and the burn book, they had, they, had, they had made it nicer. And so it wasn't quite as believable. Now, if you don't care about Mean Girls, stick with me, okay? I'm going somewhere with this. She writes this. She says, what the movie misses by simply stripping out the nastiest language of the first one is a chance to really update itself. Because if the hallmarks of relational aggression are things like cutting friends out, spreading rumors, exclusion, well then today's technology has created innumerable new ways to enact adolescent torture. She calls it meanness 2.0. She describes examples of this, and this is, most of this was new to me. Maybe it'll be new to you, maybe not. She describes a situation when people suddenly get dropped from group chats or abandoned as new ones are started. She talks about stealth meanness in which you, you tag someone in an unflattering photo of themselves so that everyone can see on their birthday, perhaps. Um, a teenager in Maryland explained how a former friend would use their text chats as a way to constantly shift from hot to cold, acting friendly at school, then leaving her texts unanswered, then texting all night, minute to minute flurries, then ghosting her for days on end, leaving her on her phone and in her feelings, ruminating on the unanswered messages. She concludes by saying, hearing about the unwritten rules of today's cafeteria dynamics made me almost for the simplicity of, you can't sit with us. What we're talking about here when we talk about meanness, and it plays out in different ways once you're a little older. It plays out in different ways when you're in elementary school. It plays out in different ways in college. But what we're talking about is the third pillar of a low anthropology. For those of you who, who've read the book, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who haven't, I'm referring to the third pillar of a low anthropology or a sort of a sober view of human nature is self-centeredness or what the Bible talks about as sin. 
You know you've got a great friend when he invites you to come and speak to his congregation about sin. I'm being facetious. It's a, it, who wants to come and talk to you about sin? I guess we'll hire the outside guy. <laughs> it's not a flattering subject. But the season of Lent, at least which I'm Episcopalian, we, we make a big deal of Lent. It's the season when we are lunatic enough to look at our self-centeredness in the eye, to surface it, to bring it out of the virtual or technological realm and acknowledge it. You see, the determining factor in human affairs isn't simply that we are limited creatures or that we're conflicted creatures, which the book talks about. The issue is that the desires of our heart, the ones that drive us, often cause harm. What we want comes at a cost to other people. Of course, it's fairly easy to see sin or self-centeredness in others, but we have a harder time identifying in ourselves. That is, we're less likely to acknowledge our complicity, our manipulations, and corner-cutting than other people's. Well, as I see it, sin is a word that captures our inner proclivity towards self-sabotage and self-centeredness. Our propensity for doing the wrong thing, the hurtful thing, for no other reason than we want to do that thing. What I'm talking about is simply that there is a dark side to human nature. And if this catches you unawares or, you're, or you don't, you're not willing to concede that there's a dark side of human nature, well then human history will be completely opaque to you. The headlines will not make any sense if you do not concede that there seems to be something in human nature which works against its own good. This is an essential, it's not a cheerful notion, but the notion of sin and self-centeredness is an essential one for moving through the world without bafflement or even bitterness. You see, from the beginning, the Bible associates sin with the human desire for control, specifically the desire to usurp God's role as creator and sustainer despite an obvious lack of qualification or ability on our part. So as such, sin describes not just a set of actions, it describes a condition. Sin is more like faulty wheel alignment than a one-off pothole. Sin is akin, I write in the book, to a magnetic field, such that everything put through it gets distorted. Plans go wrong, communications fail, good intentions decay. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? <laughs> what I'm trying to say, if your technological language is, is more your speed, our internal human processors are to some extent running bad code. There are glitches that cannot be excised by getting rid of certain words or people or books. Now, anyone who spent time with toddlers recently knows they don't need to be taught selfishness. They need to be taught, they need to learn how to share. The Onion, a number of years ago, the satirical newspaper published a satirical headline saying, New study reveals most children to be unrepentant sociopaths. A study published Monday in the Journal of Child Psychology and Psychiatry has concluded that an estimated 98% of children under the age of 10 are remorseless sociopaths with little regard for anything other than their own egocentric interests and pleasures. 
According to Dr. Leonard Mateo, a developmental psychologist at the University of Minnesota, most adults are completely unaware that they could be living among callous monsters who would remorselessly exploit them to obtain something as insignificant as an ice cream cone or a new toy. Okay, so the ubiquity, the obvious reality of self-centeredness and sin begs the question that we look at in church. How do you handle it? What do we do about the fact that we are prone to this? People are great in all sorts of ways, and yet there is a dark side. How do we deal with misbehavior? Well, the wisdom of the world that Paul talks about today is the wisdom of what I would call the law. You tell people not to do bad things, and they won't do them. Now, there may be truth to telling people not to do certain things and to do other things. But any parent will tell you, it's not that simple. Uh, The problem is not that my child doesn't know what he should do. It's that he doesn't want to do it. I need to motivate. How do I get down to motivation? Well, the wisdom of the world says you use coercion. You use threat. You use incentive. You use punishment. You use leverage. And it can work, at least for a little while. Those mean girls will stop being mean once their phones are taken away, right? (laughs) Yes, love it. Um, Of course, to raise children today is to constantly be be behind the curve of technology. The second you got one door closed, another opens. They figure their ways out around the blocks, the punishments. This is why it takes a lot of energy to be a parent these days. You have to also be in IT. And I don't know about you, I'm not good at IT. So that's the wisdom of the world which says when sin rears its head, you need to combat it with information, with threat, with coercion, with punishment, with incentive, maybe positive reinforcement. I don't know what it is in your case. But it's some form of power. The foolishness of the cross, the foolishness of grace, what we read in today's passage that John just read, looks completely different. And it looks like lunacy. I'll give you an example, and then I'm done. In 1958, the great American poet and playwright Langston Hughes published a short story that traced the foolishness of grace with astounding clarity and richness. The name of the story was Thank You, Ma'am. Maybe you've read it. There are only two characters in this story. There's a boy named Roger and a, quote, large woman with a large purse named Luella Bates Washington Jones. Luella is walking home alone late at night when Roger runs up and tries to steal her purse. Before he can get away, though, Luella grabs the boy and won't let him go. And he's in for it, we think. The wisdom of the world is that his boy's about to get throttled. The authorities are coming to punish him. Not so fast. Luella asks Roger why he tried to snatch her bag. And after telling a couple of lies, which she calls him on, he comes clean. He wanted the money 
to buy a pair of blue suede shoes. You see, Hughes wants to unburden us of our sympathy for this boy. He's not Jean Valjean trying to steal a loaf of bread to feed his family, okay? He's not stealing out of desperation or hunger. He's acting out of greed, out of sin, out of self-centeredness. Roger assumes that Luella's getting ready to haul him into jail, but instead she brings him home with her, washes his face, and tells him that she knows what it's like to want things you can't get. And then, in lieu of a lecture, Luella cooks him a meal, complete with dessert. Her unexpected behavior has a strange effect on the boy. You see, when they entered her apartment, Luella had laid her purse on the daybed where he could easily grab it and bolt. But curiously enough, he finds that he no longer wants to. Instead, he hears him ask himself, ask Luella if she needs someone to go to the store to get her milk. She demurs, filling his plate again. And this is Hughes's words here. The woman did not ask the boy anything about where he lived or his folks or anything else that would embarrass him. Instead, as they ate, she told him about her job in a hotel beauty shop that stayed open late, what the work was like. Then she cut him a half of her 10-cent cake. Eat some more, son, she said. When they were finished eating, she got up and said, Now, here, take this $10 and buy yourself some blue suede shoes. She then led him down the hall to the front door and opened it. Good night. Behave yourself, boy, she said, looking out into the street as he went down the steps. The boy wanted to say something other than, thank you, ma'am, to Miss Luella Bates Washington Jones, but although his lips moved, he couldn't even say that. Then she shut the door. Okay. Foolishness, utter foolishness is what you've just heard, and yet perhaps your heart was touched. You see, what Roger receives from Luella is the opposite of what he deserved. He broke the law, and yet Luella responds with warmth, welcome, and even reward. Her reaction lies so far outside the logic of this for that as to be, yes, lunacy. Isn't she afraid of being taken advantage of, we wonder? What about consequences? Aren't her actions irresponsible? Is she some kind of crazy person? No, Luella doesn't ignore Roger's transgression or shrug it off, nor does she punish him, as she would have every right to do, and the wisdom of the world tells her she could. Because she sees herself in the boy, the intervention she offers goes beyond mere restraint, reaching into the depths of, yes, motivation. The counterintuitive treatment that he experiences inspires a change of heart in the boy. Sitting there in her apartment, he no longer wants to do wrong. Luella bears the cost of Roger's misdeed, financial as well as relational, and it makes all the difference. This is grace. In these few short pages, Hughes has painted an indelible picture of something other than retribution. 
he captures in narrative form the only force with the power to inspire what the law commands. The kind of love that succeeds where judgment and leverage fail. The deeper magic, the foolish magic of God's grace. Now take note, those of you who can identify with the mean girls or simply have something about themselves that rings eerily true to self-centeredness. Take note that good behavior does not bring Roger into contact with Mrs. Luella Bates Washington Jones, and it won't bring us there either. Only bad behavior does the trick. Poor performance, not flying colors, that is the entranceway to God's grace. Failure, which is profoundly good news for those of us whose scores on the test of life keep getting worse. And so this Lent, we do the lunatic thing. We glimpse our lives and the wisdom of the world through the lens of the cross. The cross of Christ which is such a foolish way for God to act, such a foolish way for God to be revealed, for God to come to us to be ridiculed and then to perish for a world that thinks he and his ways are foolish? Well, grace clearly is for the foolish, the Rogers of the world, for those who are content to be doormats. Jesus in all his graceful foolishness, becomes the doormat stepped on by all to welcome you into heaven. For those who are perishing, this is foolishness. But for us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Amen.